0: Hello and welcome to Talk of Today, where we explore developments in science, technology and society, and what they could mean for the future. I'm your host, Sam Barton. My guest today is the philosophy professor, Jonathan Wolff. Jonathan is the Alfred Landeck Professor of Values and Public Policy at the University of Oxford's Blavatnik School of Government. He's one of the more practical philosophers you'd come across, having actively shaped policy in numerous areas, and recently contributed to a paper published in the journal Science on an ethical framework for global vaccine allocation, an issue which I think we can all agree is of vast importance right now. So for those of you out there who are studying philosophy and someone asks you, what the hell is the point of that? You can use this as an example. Jonathan is the author of many books, some of which include Ethics and Public Policy, Why Read Marx Today, the philosophy textbook's Introduction to Moral Philosophy and Introduction to Political Philosophy, and the book that introduced me to his work, Disadvantage, where he and his co-author explore what it means to be disadvantaged, how we can compare disadvantages, and what should governments do to move their societies in the direction of equality. When I came across his work, I was writing a paper on the Internet and the Capability Approach, which is a relatively new political and economic framework that provides an alternative way of conceptualizing and evaluating well being, justice, and development. Like most people, I had never heard of it, but it turns out that the capability approach is really quite important and shapes our lives more than we might know, as it's the theoretical underpinning for the Human Development Index a more expansive measure for assessing the development of a country when compared to economic metrics. In a sentence, the capability approach is centered on the claim that the freedom for one to choose and achieve a state of well-being is of prime moral importance, and that this is dependent upon what one can do and be in the world. So this is just one of the topics we dive into in this episode. Uh, The other things we explore in our conversation include global justice and the nation-state, the difficulties of translating philosophy into policy, balancing life and liberty in the context of the coronavirus, and universities in a post-COVID world. For links to everything discussed in the episode, you can go to the show notes on my website, samhbarton.com. While you're there, feel free to sign up to my newsletter for updates on future episodes and to get a note every now and again uh, sharing some of the more interesting things or just awesome stuff I've come across in recent times. You can find Jonathan online at jonathanwolf with two F's.wordpress.com, so jonathanwolf.wordpress.com, and on Twitter at joewolfbsg. I highly recommend checking out his work and following him online. I can vouch for the accessibility of his introductory textbooks on political and moral philosophy, so for anyone interested in learning more about these areas, definitely check them out. It was a great privilege to get to spend just over two hours speaking with Jonathan. I see Jonathan as an exemplar of what a philosopher should be because he converts philosophical inquiry into action. He's actively shaping the world in which we live, rather than just describing it and trying to understand it more deeply. The more I learn about the world, the more I understand the importance of action. That knowledge is not enough on its own. Its very purpose is to guide action. This is at least one of my takeaways from what I've learned about life, the free energy principle and information topics covered in my more recent interviews with Professor Paul Davies and Dr. Maxwell Ramstead. The rough idea being that all life forms are biological systems that organize themselves in a way to find and process energy and information, to minimize uncertainty and to act within their environments in order for their biological information to persevere throughout time. This chain of events, this transmission of information, goes back over a billion years. The key role knowledge has played here, across this incomprehensible span of time, is to guide action to preserve life. This knowledge has taken different forms over the years, as DNA, neural structures, and in the world of Homo sapiens, culture and its artifacts. Anyway, uh, if you would like to learn more about uh, this sort of stuff, I recommend checking out my interview with Maxwell Ramstead on The Free Energy Principle, my interview with Professor Paul Davies on information and life, and definitely his book, The Demon in the Machine. Um, Other podcasts I would direct you towards would be uh, basically anything with David Krakauer in it. He's the president of the Santa Fe Institute, so definitely uh, look at um the santa fe institute's podcast complexity uh the host of which i interviewed in my last episode michael garfield who actually is also someone to definitely check out with regards to all of this fun stuff anyway uh that is enough for now uh moving on to the good stuff please enjoy my conversation with professor jonathan wolf I'm the, the Alfred
1: Landeker Professor of Values and Public Policy at the Blavatnik School of Governments, uh, University of Oxford. And uh, I teach in political philosophy. Uh, that's where most of my research has been. The, uh, before I moved to Oxford, I was at UCL for a long time. I was a professor of philosophy there and then the Dean of the Faculty of Arts and Humanities. And my work began uh, as a sort of traditional political philosopher, maybe we'll talk about what that means a bit later on, but uh, working on topics of justice and state authority. Then about, it's 20 years ago now, I started getting involved in questions about ethics and public policy. So I began, uh, I was invited to take part in a review of gambling law in the UK, and they wanted a philosopher to think about the ethics of gambling and the ethics of regulation of gambling more importantly so i got i got into that and i got uh, one invitation after another for about 15 years so for a long time i was constantly sitting on committees looking at public events issues of public morality um what i have done in terms of my research um One strand of research has been looking at the intersection between political philosophy and these matters of public policy. And so I have a book, Ethics and Public Policy, that's just been published in the second edition. Um, I've also worked on issues around uh, justice and disadvantage, looked at the capability approach, for example, which I think we might talk about a bit later on. I've also done quite a bit of work on two topics that have suddenly come back into fashion. I was working on these topics and really stopped for a while. These were uh, the ethics of risk, and uh, issues around resource distribution particularly in medical resource distribution so i've worked on th- thinking about how we should price drugs uh, how should we uh, incentivize the development of drugs in the uh, health service so i did quite a bit of work around the human right to health around healthcare allocation the social determinants of health and risk and i put that to one side for a while And uh, I've been working on regulation and also with my new research project on minority rights because uh, it's set up in, my chair is set up in memory of um, a man who was murdered in the Holocaust and the chair is funded around the types of issues of rising intolerance and um, destruction of minority rights. So that's another strand. So if we go back just the last two or three years, I was working on regulation. Then I switched to starting thinking about fascism and the rise of fascism and the parallels we see now. Then suddenly I got all these phone calls and emails saying, can you help us with this paper on COVID? And resource allocation or COVID and risk so I think I'm now on three different working groups producing papers on COVID related topics and I've also got another two papers with co-authors so suddenly I've gone back to the things I was doing five or ten years ago because of the current situation.
0: Oh well, wow. Sounds like a busy time. I guess if you're on lockdown <laughs> it you know it's a, there's less distractions. Um, so uh, what does, a uh, like, not everyone, I know this was the case for me, not, not everyone would actually know what a, a political philosopher does because we, we, we hear of political science and we hear of, you know, we, we all live in, in, uh, in countries governed by uh, governments, but it's not immediately obvious what a political uh, philosopher does and, you know, what the relationship might be to other areas of philosophy and, um, you know, moral philosophy. Um, so I'm, I'm curious, perhaps if you could just speak, um, Briefly about you know the role of a political philosopher in um, society, and perhaps how common it is for political philosophers to engage in matters of policy and uh, ethics, like like you're doing at the moment.
1: So there are so many ways of trying to answer this question, and um, so I'll give you a, a couple of the things I think about that are, that are quite related. <laughs> So, so I teach now in the School of Governments, and a lot of our students are mature students, so age 25 to 35, often from the developing world, um, who haven't studied humanities before. So they might have had a background in, in business, even engineering, medicine. They come to the Master of Public Policy. And they have this course in political philosophy, and they are a bit daunted because they don't really know what it's going to be. And we start talking and talking to them, and um, they get engaged very quickly. And one of them, an Indian student, said to me, you know, this is just like the arguments I had with my father when I was 15 years old. And the thought was, if you're sitting around the dinner table uh, with another generation, and they might have, at that point, more conservative views than you, and they think... uh, unemployment benefits should be cut because of all these lazy people. And you want to say, well, they're not lazy. They can't get a job. Maybe they're depressed and can't work. Maybe there are other reasons before you call them lazy. Maybe you should look and think about their lives and how it would look from your point of view. And so quite a lot of what we do in political philosophy is to take the discussions people are having among themselves you hear on the radio you hear in the pub if you can still go to the pub where you are um we and we try to th- just think about these issues in a much more structured and systematic way and try to understand the underlying concepts and values how they relate to each other. So the second answer to the question, that was the first answer to the question, political philosophy is what we're already doing anyway, but we do it in a much more systematic and structured fashion. The second answer um, comes from the way the course I teach on now was set up, and it was set up by other people. Um, and they've set it up around four questions which we still follow. So the first question is, you know, what is the aim of government? So. The thought is what should governments do we elect these governments what do we want them to do and it's going to be something like further the common good they should act in the public interest But what does that actually mean so what do we want our governments to be doing and how can we therefore how can we we tell whether they're doing the right thing or the wrong thing so that's the first question um yeah you know, what's the aim of government second question we have is what are the limits of government so what should government not do so should government be able to intrude in your private life should government be able to tell you who you can marry and who you can't marry or in some countries it can tell you you can't call your children certain names or that you can't wear certain things in public or you must wear certain things in public so are we comfortable with the limits of government so in other words this is a question about rights and disobedience and justified protest which of course is a major major topic at the moment uh, just like every other moment actually there's always reasons to be protesting against your government there are always people with placards somewhere so some people think either the government is doing the wrong thing or in the sense it should be doing something else or they think the government sh- just shouldn't be intruding in this area and of course we have uh, people telling us the government's wrong to enforce mask wearing or the government's wrong to keep us in our homes at the moment. So those are questions about the limits of government. Then the third question, which is the one I suppose I was more interested in to start with, is the question of who gets what. So in any society, there's a distribution of resources. Should we just let the market distribute resources? Should we correct the markets? What does it mean to correct the market? Should we move more in the direction of equality? Have we gone too far in the direction of equality? So of the good things in society, wealth and income, opportunity, how should they be distributed? Then the final question, it could be, could be the first question, really, um, is who says? So decisions have to be made. Who should make them? And it's really fascinating for me, having moved from one university to another. So uh, I used to teach at UCL University College London, and we had a lot of overseas students there, but they were from a limited range of countries. And we could pretty much assume in the classroom that everyone agrees with us that democracy is the only way. And so if a society is not democratic, then there's something wrong with it. And then where I am now, uh, we have students from 50 different countries most year in the classroom. So we have obviously students from China, students from Singapore, students from some African countries with the one party democracy, really. Uh, We have students who have countries that look a bit less democratic or don't even pretend to be democratic and it feels rather arrogant to us to stand up at the front and say well we know democracy is the only system so if you're living in a country that's not a democracy you are wrong so we have these questions about how so really the question of who decides is how should our government be appointed should it be through democratic election or are there other ways that are are legitimate. And so this is one of the areas we discuss on the course are there other legitimate routes? And is democracy as good as we used to think it was? So in surveys now around the world, particularly younger people are not so impressed with democratic systems as they once were, including people living in democratic systems, of course.
0: This, the, uh, the question of democracy is a, an interesting one. It, it's, a, it's a term that's bandied around every day in you know, amongst friends, and in discussions with relatives, and you know, on television and all that. But I think we all have an intuitive understanding of what it is, but um, it also varies quite considerably depending on which country you're speaking, which which country you're referring to. So, what is the the, the unifying thread of, of of democracy? Is is it the the ability for each person in the in society, perhaps above the a certain age, they have the ability to influence the political process? If you were to reduce it down to something, would, would that be what democracy is?
1: So uh, you're right to raise this as a question. And um, whenever anyone asks me for a definition of anything, I, I begin to panic.
0: Yeah. Um, <laughs> it's, it's really difficult. Because <laughs> this is the nature of, of, I guess, well, 50% of philosophy at least, at least from, from what I've seen.
1: Yeah, so I'm, I'm with Nietzsche on this. And so so Nietzsche said that um, any concept that has a history doesn't have a definition um, you know, because it's used by different people at different times and, and, and in different ways. And the idea that there's a single real essence is very dogmatic. So I could give you a definition of democracy, but maybe it doesn't fit your idea of democracy. And you know, who's to say I'm right and and you're wrong? But I think that it, that's not to say things are not uh analyzable. So so if we think about what the essence of democracy seems to be the way it's used now, I think we, we tend to think of it as having two or th- or th- maybe three main main aspects to it. Uh, so so first of all, uh you have majority voting. So there's no no doubt of, about that for democracy, it it involves a system by which people cast their votes. And there's some way in which you announce a winner from the process um, as according to the rules. So So it involves voting. Secondly, certainly in modern democracies, it involves competition between parties. So you have systems where you vote, but there's only one party you can vote for effectively. And we're pretty sure that's not a democracy. Thirdly, and this is maybe more controversial, but I think very important, that democracies involve protection of minority rights. So democracy is not just about voting, but but about protecting vulnerable people. Now, you might say that's not democracy, that's liberalism or or liberal democracy. I certainly think in modern democracy, the protection of vulnerable groups is really uh, critically important. So here, I I think this is one of the crises we're in at the moment, because we have um, popular leaders, uh, very often people who were not career politicians, so they've come into politics from the outside, thinking of one country in particular here, Um, and they are not really very respectful of the ordinary ideas of politics. They think they've been elected to run the country, they have the will of the people as the wind in their sails. So they have been elected to do the will of the people. The will of the people turns out to be whatever they want, but that's the will of the people because they've been elected. And they think that if a judge or an academic or a newspaper stands in their way by trying to point out they overturning old democratic traditions, or violating separation of powers, or persecuting minorities, uh, those people are accused of standing in the way of the will of the people, and are therefore enemies of the people. So protectors of minority rights suddenly turn into enemies of the people because of the, or the emphasis on on majority rule, rather than the other half of democracy, or another third of democracy that I see, protection of individuals.
0: Yeah, it's um, it's quite disconcerting to see. Uh, in all honesty, uh, to, you know, we're most likely referring to the, to the United States, and you know, what is it, the twenty second of of September, and I, I I don't know if many of us would have expected that things would happen to deteriorate um uh, so quickly over there, and you know, just to have Trump at the helm, um, spouting, you know, what, what he spouts, and um, really dividing people is, is uh, it 's it's quite a worry um, I, I want to just shift to some of the things that you brought you brought up earlier um, about the role of government and um, p- political uh, philosophy in in general um, a lot of its political philosophy is, uh, seems to be focused on and this is just from my limited exposure to it, but on you know the roles and the responsibilities of the state and what is just um, but in a world where we have uh, you know, over a hundred States and each of them are interconnected and we have, you know, intergovernmental organizations like the United Nations, uh, and the fact that we all share one planet and that we are inextricably, uh, connected to the earth and it's, and it's natural systems. Um, how does, what, what's the conversation like, or what, 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 what is discussed? Um, by political philosophers where these issues are concerned, because I, um, I mean, I'm Australian. I've lived in Australia for, you know, um, a decent chunk of my life, but I've also lived in other countries and I'm exposed and deeply influenced by um, the internet and, you know, the fact that I'm connected to all these other countries and many of the, uh, the opportunities that I'm afforded in life and just the technologies and the entertainment and the culture that I have access to is not a consequence of my own country, but that of you know many others and the you know, and their constituents. So it's the 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 line of the state. It, it's a nice box to work within, but we're at this time now where that where those with those borders are becoming more permeable, and I'm I'm curious to hear about what the. Well, What's being spoken about? For what? What's the? Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm not too sure, but it's just, it's just very interesting because we have all these global challenges which we're faced with, and we have these sovereign nation states who are, you know, um, self-determined and they have uh, their sovereign rights. But it's, it seems like a bit of a, a problem, given the, <laughs> the the degree of risk, you know, the risk that we are faced with existential risks. So yeah, I don't know what, you could just pick up wherever you want from there because it wasn't really a question, but what are your thoughts there?
1: Yeah, thank you, yes. So um, as you were talking, um, you reminded me of a book I reviewed 20 years ago, longer than that. Um, And there was an essay by David Held in it. And he said that the nation states is obsolete because it's too big for some purposes and too small for others. That is, um, if if you think about a city, say, it's it's very important to have city-level governments, very important to have, he wasn't talking about climate change, but he was talking about ecological degradation. We need to deal with that on a global level. Lots of things about um, security we need to to do on a more global level and so you know, he was arguing even 20 years ago that the state is this sort of uncomfortable thing in the middle the nation states is a comfortable thing in the middle which doesn't really serve the purposes it used to serve um, so I think that can be exaggerated there's, there's still a good role for the nation state that um, I don't think we can move to global governance I think they very that would be a very scary prospect to have, have the idea that there would be one government for everything and I don't think it's possible although there are very big countries so if you think about China I mean China is what a quarter of the population of the earth and there's one government for China Um, so if if you get it right you can maybe do it fairly effectively on a very very large scale Um, but I think the um, if you think about where is the conversation now I mean there are lots of different conversations and as i'm sure you know uh, discussion and philosophy can get very meta and methodological so a lot of the discussion is the question of what is the discussion we should be having right now um uh, because the um I mean, yeah, it's fascinating. Even some of the terminology is really interesting. So when I, I mentioned I was at UCL and one of the, the spiritual founder of UCL is Jeremy Bentham. And Jeremy Bentham invented the word international.
0: Is his so body, we, sorry, but his body's at UCL, right? Like, and yes. Act, it's like stuffed or, you know, he's sorry for the diversion, but it's just yeah. like an interesting fact.
1: Yeah, I'm sure you can find a picture. It's called an... Auto icon. It's his bones, apparently that have been somehow embalmed, and he's he's in a case in UCL. In fact, they they just moved it um, to a, the new student centre. I think a great controversy because it wasn't a wooden box, and I think now it's in a perspex case. That you can see all the way around. I
0: <laughs> wonder what about the utilitarian um, argument is for that. Uh, <laughs>
1: It's very funny. Um, I yes, I can't. uh, And he he has various things about. um, You know, we shouldn't pay attention to the dry old bones of the past. Uh, But anyway, he his dry old bones are there at UCL.
0: (laughs) But yeah, I wasn't sure. But sorry, sorry for that. Yeah, Yeah.
1: no, that's good. It's uh, so Bentham uh, coined the word international, and for a while we we were using that quite a lot at UCL. Then someone pointed out to me, um, well, international and global. We often use them as synonyms, but they're not the same, um, because international is about relations between nations rather than relations between people. Um, and you know, we, we have departments of politics, even at Oxford, we've got the Department of Politics and International Relations. So that's treating the world as a system of nations, and we need to understand the relations between those nations. But there's another view that says, well, we should talk about global justice say rather than international justice because what matters are the people that live in the nations not the nations themselves and so to think globally is to try and think of a single population of everyone rather than a community of nations Uh, but the um within political philosophy some of the topics that have been discussed and have always been discussed concern international relations such as war uh, conditions under which one country could declare war on another and so there's a just war tradition and people are still obviously talking about this because it's not a topic that's gone away or is ever likely to go away Um, but the uh, trendy topic i guess 15 years ago and that's not to say it's gone away but it really became very prominent then was a topic of global justice and the question of what is it that wealthy countries owe to poor countries and how should we conceptualize those duties? actually it goes back quite a bit further there's a very famous paper by peter singer in the 70s famine affluence and morality where singer argues that um just as you should help the child drowning in the pond, you should send your money across the world to help the child starving. And so there's this idea that, you know, that we have humanitarian aid because other people are starving. And, of course, um, it's hard to disagree that we have some humanitarian duties. Uh, but those, what are those duties? Are they duties of charity? Are they duties of justice? Are they duties of reparation? So here we get into questions about empire and colonial injustice and historic injustice, and whether um, because you know, if you're if you're brought up in a wealthy country, every Christmas you're shown advertisements about people starving in other countries, and that we have to send them some money to keep them alive. I can remember a nigerian academic who was working in namibia uh, coming into my office a long time ago and saying yeah we you look at these things and yeah, people in the west think of africa as in the continent full of starving people and that's our image of africa it's a continent where everyone's starving um i said well if that's true how long did it how did it get to survive this long i mean if it's the natural state of africa to be starving and it only stays alive because of bob Geldof and live aid then it would have been dead long ago right and he says this is such a terrible misrepresentation yeah the, the, of course people do starve in africa very sadly but it's not the natural state of affairs uh, and that's uh, africa is a yeah, very advanced in the cities and so on. Lots of new technological developments. Banking. Yeah, you know, Africa has a banking system. Who would know if you just saw the documentaries? And uh, they but, leapfrogged
0: uh, us as well. Not only with like with uh, the adoption of certain technologies that they uh, with in Kenya. I think they they were transferring uh, payments between each other with phones a long time before. I mean, yeah. I mean, a lot of us in Australia probably aren't doing it. Maybe my grandma or you know uh, the older generations. Perhaps now they are. But you know, this is. I think this is mm. at least. Uh, ten year This has been around for ten years, so they've just completely leapfrogged. And I know there's a, a thriving startup ecosystem, um, from what I understand, in um, Nigeria and in Ethiopia. But um, I haven't had the exposure there. But yeah, it's not this um, this desolate, um, arid, uh, famine-ridden land that we are, that we've been shown on, on these advertisements. But yeah,
1: yeah. So, so this is one conversation now, which is um, how do we conceptualize? <laughs> Uh, our relations between the wealthy countries and developing countries uh, that our, what we have sort of grown up with is the idea that somehow the wealthy countries are wealthy because of our character and thrift and hard work and greater intelligence or something and other countries are poor because somehow they're just naturally poor and so out of the goodness of our hearts we ought to share some of our excess wealth with these poor unfortunates so it's sort of like a medieval view of christian charity really Um, and what it has in common with that medieval view is it doesn't interrogate the history that put people in those different positions and so you know within i suppose the domestic uh, framework. You have the Marxist tradition, which tries to expose exploitation and class struggle. Then you have the, the same thing in a global dimension. Think about colonialism, uh, imperialism, and historical injustice and the legacy of injustice. And so, I think we're still working out how how to think about this, um, because on the one, there's a type of dilemma, which is on, on the one hand it seems insulting to say to the developing world, you need our charity. On the other hand, there do seem to be some rights that have been violated and that there's a legitimate, there seems to be a legitimate claim for something in response to those rights violations. So is it a massive transfer of resources? So we're learning more and more. I mean, so in the UK, um, we've had our head in the sand for so long and I think the if you think about slavery, the slave trade in the UK, most people, I think, only know that uh, Wilberforce uh, abolished the slave trade or something. This is what they will say. England is responsible for abolishing the slave trade. They weren't told we were responsible for starting it. They're only told we were responsible for for ending
0: it. If you Um, put out the fire that you started, you know, it (laughs) does make you
1: you (laughs) benevolent and wonderful. (laughs) And and it's it's not just a fire because it was a raiding exercise. And, you know, the wealth of this nation is built on cotton, on sugar, um,
0: on... there's there's this book called the divide uh, by Jason. I want to say Hinkle, but I, but I I can't remember. And he, um, he goes, it's like a deep exploration of, um, well, the divide between, I think, I think it's the global South, the global North and the global South. I don't know if I like that distinction, but basically, you know, the West and the rest. And, uh, he goes on, he explores how, uh, the, the riches of Europe and the UK, uh, was not only, um, a lot of it was not just, just due to, you know, the raping of, you know, South America and Africa, but, um, also the, the, um, I think it was the calories that the, that the, the Brits and the, and the Europeans could get from the trade and the extraction of resources and like the enslaving of, of people enabled the industrial revolution because, you know, everyone needs a certain amount of um, land for uh, or a certain amount of calories to do work. You know, energy is like the fundamental unit in a way of, of any of, of life in any civilization or, um, or organism. Um, so the ability to outsource the production of calories um, enabled, freed up the hands of those in Europe to uh, move towards more industrial activities, uh, which then, you know, ratcheted up, like it, it empowered these, these countries to produce far more uh, valuable goods and, uh, you know, skyrocket ahead. Uh, you know, like economies, it's like, you know, um, because they were that far ahead, they they had increasing returns to, to scale and all that sort of stuff. And I just thought, you know, that's a very interesting, um, I, I, had, I hadn't heard of that before. And, you know, this, this idea of um, whether or not we are, like the this discussion of charity and, and redistribution and global wealth redistribution is, you know, a big question of it, at least from my perspective is, um, are we entitled to keep, like, uh, are we responsible for generating all of our wealth? Are we solely responsible? And if the question, if the answer is no, then the question is, okay, well, how much, how, how responsible are we? And, um, you know, this perspective makes me see among, among many others that, you know, we are far less responsible than many of us might like to might like to think. And the implications for that, are, you know, well, do we, re, do we redistribute wealth globally? And if that's the case, then how do we do it and blah, 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 blah. But I just thought that was, um, um, very. It was quite eye-opening.
1: Yeah. So, so you're absolutely right. So I, I hadn't heard that. I. I it, what it reminds me of is a book I once wrote a review about, concerning the potato, which is not indigenous to Europe. It's
0: my favourite um, vegetable, by the way. Yeah.
1: Yeah, well, <laughs> Fried <potatoes>. and, uh, <laughs> and uh, supposedly uh, the potato transformed nutrition uh, because you can get much more nutrition out of potato given w- what you need to cultivate it. So before that, um, in Europe, we were using you know, wheats and grasses uh, which give you far less nutrition than the potato. So even simple things like that. But uh, but yeah, you know, this point about about luck. What are we responsible for? And so a lot depends on whether you take we individually or collectively. If you think of, of we Australians or we, we Brits, what are we responsible for? And we can have an argument that it was a you know, combination of pillage and. Uh, Maybe grit and determination, um, but if you take us now as individuals, yeah, we're not responsible for anything. Now, we we were born into a system whereby yeah you know, we we could convert the talents we had into a comfortable life. But yeah, if you've been born to, to a different system, probably in, none of us would have been able to convert those talents into into very much. So. I think we tend to forget all the background that um, allows some people with talents to you know, pursue a certain type of life. But uh, so you know, all of this go, goes into these issues at the moment. But I, I just to continue the, the thoughts, I'll, I'll stop. That the, within the discussion of distributive justice, contemporary distributive justice and global justice which is what we're talking about there's one argument we've been talking about now which is very important which is the historical legacy and um you know we've talked about the way in which the wealthy countries just use their empires as resources really to pillage the you you, you had um what was it from the congo someone noticed that when Um, the Congo was a Belgian possession in fact the personal possession of King Leopold in one direction there was mahogany and rubber in the boats and in the other direction were um, guns and shackles okay so there was an Irish shipping clerk looking at this saying, well, this doesn't look like fair trade to me. This doesn't look like a trading relation between two countries because you have valuable commodities going in one direction and um, instruments of torture and oppression going yeah. in, in the other direction. Okay, so you, you have that historical injustice and, and then, there's a, then this raises quite interesting philosophical questions because all of the people who are directly involved in those injustices are dead now. And so do we as their successors Well, you know, my family, um, okay, it's not that uncommon in the UK. I'm from an immigrant family. Uh, You know, none of my family (laughs) were in the UK when these things were being done. Does that mean I personally don't have any liability for it? So you can get into all these tough... And Australia, I suppose, is even more so that uh, it's a nation of immigrants. So those questions of historical injustice, I think there are answers to them. But there's another question about continuing injustice through um, trade laws, for example, and and trade patterns, unfair trading practices. And so it's believed um, by many people that the international trade laws are rigged in favor of the rich countries. And so it's not just a historical injustice, it's ongoing injustice Mm. now. And so there are injustices that need to be, be corrected.
0: This is mentioned in and that. Book I'm as sure. Well. Um, I think he, he mentions that a number of African countries that were once uh, French colonies, they have to buy certain resources or from France rather than from other countries. They are their trading partners are uh, limited by you know some some uh, issues of historical circumstance. Um, nothing more. Uh,
1: yeah, I mean, and this happens in most peculiar ways. So I was in Namibia a while ago. We had a, a conference. And um, the deputy minister from the finance ministry was there. And he, in his talk, it became apparent that Namibia has a special relationship with China and that China has some sort of preferential trading arrangement with Namibia. Because um, Namibia only gained its independence in the last few decades. And the revolutionary fighting force was SWAPO, a Southwest Africa something, something, people's organization. So they, they were like the ANC in South Africa. And um, all the Western countries supported the regime, not the uh, resistance fighters. Um, so, the, so the resistance was only supported by China and the Soviet Union. And of course, the Soviet Union isn't there anymore. So all of these countries in South Africa who gained independence, most of them, what was the group of so-called terrorists and now the ruling party, like the ANC and SWAPO, the political parties, they were funded by China to help gain independence. And they still regard themselves as bound by this special relationship to China. So you have these strange connections where... Countries find it harder to stand on their own two feet because of historical legacy, and the, the key French example that you um, comes to mind is uh, Haiti, which was a French colony until the slave revolt, and um, incredibly, I I don't know if it's still going on, but they uh, Haiti agreed to pay reparations to France, and so. And, and this was equivalent to billions of. Wait, so Haiti is paying reparations
0: to France?
1: Yeah. Haiti is paying reparations to France because the slaves were all. They all freed themselves. And so the, slave, the French slave owners lost their property. And so Haiti is still paying compensation, I believe. Still. Or, well, until very uh, until recently. recently. I should have looked this up. Yeah, yeah, up yeah. until all recently. Recent. <laughs> Haiti was paying compensation to France for appropriating the slaves, i.e. freeing themselves, if you can believe that. That's
0: disgraceful. So, that, even if it's yeah. happened, even up until the most... <laughs> when would it have been, like, a century? If it, had, if it was going on last century, it should have been stopped. Any self-respecting Frenchman would probably say the same thing, I'm sure. I mean, yeah. look at the, the French population. There's a huge population of yeah. um, Africans there. That's just or oh, you know, Africans, yeah. um, you, you know what I'm saying? Yeah, oh, terrible. So once you start digging,
1: you find all sorts of things. And um, yeah, a lot of these things, so yeah, you don't have to have, you don't have to be a radical to think that a lot of these things are wrong. Um, you just have to know about them. And it's not part of our education to know about the terrible things your country's done. You only, you only learn about the good things. So every country comes away thinking we're the good guys. Um, even in, I mean, it's extraordinary. Um, I was visiting Germany, which is where my, my father was from, and um, his, father, his parents died in the Holocaust. Um, but I was visiting someone who now lives in the house that they used to live in, in, in Frankfurt. And she told me she was educated in Germany in the late 40s and 50s. She was at school and she never heard about the second world war at school so (laughs) in, in germany History ended when she was young at the First World War, and they were told that it was all Britain's fault, that uh, somehow we had caused the First World War. And they learned nothing about the rise of Hitler or the Second World War. And this was in the 1950s in Germany. And she told me that she didn't know anything about it until she had an Israeli boyfriend, and she met uh, the boyfriend's parents when she was about 17. And the father said, I will never know how your people did this to our people. And she said, what are you talking about? So this but, was Germany in
0: a in That would have been, what a pairing yeah. those two back then as well.
1: <laughs> yeah, so that was Germany in the 1950s. So things have moved on. Of course, Germany have done more than anyone to try to uh, acknowledge and um, repair the harms that have been done. Uh, but yeah, this is so much of... Um, Global injustice doesn't need deep philosophical thinking to understand it's unjust, um, but we, we do need uh, philosophical thinking to try to work out what how to respond to it, not just philosophical thinking. So you know, literature is very important. History is very important. But do we need to make amends, financial amends? Um, what form could that take?
0: Mm. What about an apology? To pay for the sins of our fathers, you know, that's the... Yeah. 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 Something that I've been thinking about is that the good thing is there's a very strong argument uh not from the perspective uh, there's a very strong argument for global wealth redistribution and it's not about paying reparations but it's that um well a tremendous amount of people in the world just lack access to basic necessities and you know I think even mm. to a billion people don't have access to energy like um you know electricity mm. and that by prov- by redistributing wealth um we can grant these people you know the billions um who are you know they don't have the same advantages that you and i have right now if we were to um, grant them if we were to redistribute wealth and deliver more uh opportunities to them or to to ensure that they have a better material um quality of life um the great thing is that in the long run um the fact that human beings are the greatest creative problem solvers we know of in existence and that one person can change the course of humanity forever, Um, the chances are that these people uh, across the world will do something that's sufficiently productive that will, you know, um, benefit everyone. Um, You know, Mm -hmm. the, the classic is, you know, how many Einsteins are there, you know, in a town or in a, in a village without running water or, you know, uh, access to the, maybe not the internet, but a physics book or, or whatever. So there's many of these people, um, out there who just lack, uh, this, this basic, who, who lack basic needs and, what I thought was staggering because I'm, I'm very interested in, in the internet and how, how it fits into all of this. And there's a statistic that's, you know, we always hear that oh close to 50% of the population uh, has access of the global population has access to the internet. And we're like, Oh, that's pretty good. 50%. That's, you know, we're, we're on our way, but what they failed to mention is that that 50%, that statistic um, to be counted in that statistic, you need to have had, had, you need to have had access to the internet once within three months So every three months, which is, you know, would you, you wouldn't say you have access to running water if you get access to a tap once every three months. Mm. So the reality is probably far worse. Um, Mm. and when you consider the, the power, the, the potential of the internet for not just like it increases the landscape of opportunity more than anything else we know of. Um, and it people can learn how to read. They can, it's like the, it's the base of the branch in a way. For all the freedoms that you can achieve, um, if you if you get access to something like that, or you know, shelter, water, all those sorts of things, it could result in you know a tr- tremendous amount of, uh, of of benefits. So, I, I think the framing of this question of wealth redistribution, rather than it being paying for the sins of our fathers, and you know, it's a retribution, it, it's what's um, what I'm looking for. It's uh, you know it's reparations. Rather than viewing it from from that perspective, there's like this, uh, this, I would not say more of a positive, um, you could say egoistic or selfish perspective um, that, you know, like distributing wealth globally can actually benefit myself and people in, uh, you know, my own country, um, which I think is just a wonderful, uh, it's wonderful that that's the case.
1: Uh, I'll, my slight variation on that is it would be wonderful if it were the case, right? Um, so...
0: If we were doing that, or... If, no, no, so if,
1: if we could be sure that... Uh, oh,
0: yes, yes, yes. Yeah, because I, be I think... Sure, the, sure.
1: Yeah, well, if, if, so, so I take a slightly unconventional view, I think, uh, on, on this, because there, uh, there's a lot of writing in um, Global Justice, which points out, you know, the top so many percent or the top 10 billionaires if the top 10 billionaires gave away half their money we would solve global poverty or something so you know oxfam puts out figures like this um you know philosophers often start their papers like this with with these figures and i just want to say well slow down slow down a bit because what are we going to do with that money? What's going to happen to it? Um, yeah, huge amounts of money have been put into development, and we've got much less to show for it than we think we ought to have. Um, Dan Bisa-Moyo, uh, economist from Zambia, wrote a book called Dead, Dead Aid, and she said $3 trillion of aid has been put into Africa. <laughs> And um, what has it created? Well, it's created a corrupt class of rentiers who've taken this money and left their countries in an enormous amount of debt. Um, now, of course, a lot of that is loans and conditional loans rather rather than aid. But I think she, you know, the, the, the point is that, or well, the point I, I would want to make is that there are two problems. One is getting the money and the other is knowing what to do when you've got the money. And most people, political philosophers, will be focused on these questions of the distribution of money, because there are wealthy countries and poor countries. And it's obvious that uh, equality requires distribution, and there are other good reasons for distribution. But We still need to know what are we going to do when we've got the money. And you you go uh, go through Africa. You see lots of wells that were dug five years ago and not maintained and are now abandoned. you see brand new Toyota Land Cruisers abandoned by the side of the road because the oil filter is clogged and no one taught anyone how to you know, <laughs> clean the oil filter. Um, so it's, it's not a matter of transferring resources. It's, it's a matter of um, real, change, real social change, which can't be done just by money. I mean, I, one of the topics I've worked on a bit in the last few years is poverty, and um i was was asked to do the start on this work by the joseph roundtree foundation in the uk and the roundtree foundation was founded um by a member of the roundtree family uh, benjamin sirbam roundtree who was a philanthropist and social researcher and he was writing about poverty in uh, around about 1900, so in in York, in the north of England, and he had these did this incredible project where he had his inspectors just go round house by house, and, and talking inspecting the poor people of York. I mean, I don't know that you could do this now. How many people love them, live there? What do they do? So you have these remarkable reports that say, um, you know, one room house wife slovenly husband drunk four children um yeah shared toilet with 10 others overflowing one water pipe for 20 people and you just get these descriptions and of course someone's working someone's respectable um there's a hint here and there that someone might be a prostitute but um on the whole these are just very poor people who are trying to get by and struggling to get by and the description is like the shanty towns you see in developing countries that was 1900 about 1930 1940 he did the same sort of thing and in those three or four decades which were not particularly celebrated as decades of great economic growth because there was a war and the uh depression and the great strike um but between 1900 and 1930 or 1940, suddenly the poor aren't living like that anymore. So you know, the poor have got power. They've got lighting in their houses. It's not just gas lights or candles. Yeah, they're not really starving. Um, you know, in, in 1900, uh, there was a story of a... In one of these not that book but another book about a woman who was too ashamed to do her shopping in the daylight hours because she only had slippers so she'd wait till dark she didn't have any outdoor shoes so she'd wait till dark to go out and do her shopping right and other stories where you couldn't have everyone out of the house at the same time in the winter because they don't have enough coats so that was a sort of 1900 England right by 1930s 1940s okay that was still going on but it was very very rare so something had happened that had brought people out of poverty and um, and this is what sort of gives me hope really because yes to some degree it was government policies as to some degree you know the government was more enlightened uh, it was paying attention but it wasn't just coming along and splashing some money it didn't just say you know here's money from rich people we're going to give it to poor people or we're going to give it to local governments it needed a properly thought through plan And so I'm very naive here, but I think if people come up with the plans that work, they will get funded because there's a lot of money out there looking to do good. Um, But what happens is that the plans are too optimistic, they're not proven, they fail, they're not sustainable, they don't have local buy-in. Some of the money is filtered off through corruption. So lots of money comes in and there's relatively little to show for it
0: yeah yeah there's um i'd love to know how effective like the 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 money spent on these sorts of things i mean it would be it'd be hard to next to impossible because we're we're talking about either like i'm I'm thinking about aid in particular but also just you know uh general social spending on on, in, in governments and Oh, in societies. So um, I'm just curious. Um, do you know this? Is maybe not so much on the political philosophy front, but what sorts of investments like this actually result in increases in um, well-being, or maybe well-being, or you know, quality of life? I don't know how we'd measure this, but
1: um, th- yeah. So, 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 it's really tough. I mean, and um, and we go through policy cycles because uh, you, you see money going into um an area and yeah, it's wasted or uh, there's some uh, something is done it falls into disrepair or there's no local buy-in to begin with so people go in with a big idea do I'm something sorry, w- when
0: you say go local buy-in in, do you mean local as buy-in from the people or the, the, yeah. the okay so so the people who the, are the- the-
1: the, the people who it's intended to benefit i mean so I, so, so here's a silly example it, it, it wasn't a, a lot of money but i was i was um, at a conference and an ethiopian scholar was going through the millennium development goals um, so you can tell how old this is right so the millennium development goals and he he was going through the slides very quickly and everything was a bit dismal that, that nothing was going very well but, but then one of the slides was for indoor toilets or indoor latrines and um, he went very quickly through it it looked a great success like there was a very high uptake of indoor latrines and um, he went over the slide and we all said hang on hang on come back isn't that a great success story and he said well the numbers are good but, but you know, we're talking about people who are living in basically in huts here so what is an indoor latrine Right? so an indoor latrine is a hole you've dug in your own hut um, and, you, and you get money from the government to dig a hole in your own hut but you're not going to use it um, it's in your <laughs> hut it's a hole, an exposed <laughs> hole without the oh goodness um, so people still go out in in the bushes and if you're living in rural Ethiopia it's not a problem it's, it's, it's only if you're in Delhi that, uh, that's a this is a big, serious problem. Now, uh, yeah, that's an exaggeration. But you can see that um, it, this whole system was set up with false incentives. So money went in, and it supposedly had the effect that it made no difference. In fact, it probably made people's life a bit worth, worse because now they had this hole in their hut <laughs> in the ground. <laughs> or maybe they filled it the all in again. But anyway, so you you have stupid schemes like that, and that didn't have local buy-in, but it, but it did distribute a bit of money. The um, So I think the... Uh, so what tends to happen is you have these schemes that, don't, that they're not sustainable. They don't have local buy-in. So the next lot come along, and say, "Look, okay, we've got. If we're going to do this, we need to have consultation with local people. We have to show it's sustainable." And this sounds fantastic, and then it gets operationalized. And what it means now is that for every project you do, you have to have six meetings and the paperwork. And you have to fill in lots of forms about how this is all going to be sustainable. And so it turns into a bureaucratic nightmare. And so you have this, and people say, who, hey, what idiot put these ridiculous constraints on it? Let's make it lean and agile and flexible. And so you take all of this off and you go back to where you were. So this is known as policy cycles. So I'm exaggerating, this is a caricature. but You get this sort of thing that, that um, everything is very easy to criticize, um, but it's very, very hard to do better than what you've just criticized. In, in terms of what has done well, um, so there are some things I know have done extremely well experimentally, but they're much harder to roll out. So there's one great project um, that was done in Bangladesh and Nepal and in part of northern India. And this was about child health. So, so the problem is, how do you improve child health in low-resource settings? And you could you could try to build a hospital. You could fly in experts from the city. Um, you, you could try to have education sessions and so on. But the, the people who are doing this just decide to try a number of different things. And what they found is that the way to improve child health is by empowering women, um, by which they mean... Uh, getting women together to share their experiences, getting the best woman in the village to teach, pay the best reader in the village to teach the other women to read. So now they can read about hygiene and nutrition. They can share their stories. And you don't need uh, healthcare resources to get this benefit. Of course, you need healthcare resources for other things. But if you're just trying to look at the most effective way of turning money into health outcomes, the thing to do is to get... Local women's groups to uh, to form, give them the resources they need in order to educate each other and learn from each other.
0: That's that's the uh, case for most. Like a lot of interventions, just come down to well, effective interventions come down to empowering women like empowering women is one of the best like from, from memory seems to be one of the best things we can do just to improve outcomes for people in general or in the, in the um, disadvantaged countries in, in particular
1: yeah yeah and so then there's a the question what does that even mean um and and so it's it's giving safe places to meet giving um a type of permission to do it so it, Approval because your husbands will be suspicious about what their wives are doing. I think they're plotting against them or having an affair or something. So um, you, you need to set up sort of safe, uh, uh, safe and understood ways in which this can happen. But yeah, it's true. I saw so another another project about building um, public toilets in. I think it was in Bangladesh. I might be wrong, um, but. There were two projects, one in which the government had just paid a construction company to build them, and they built them very cheaply and they were falling apart within a year because they also had the contracts for maintenance and rebuilding. And the other project was just to give the money to the local women who who taught themselves how to do it and built to a very high standard and we're so proud of it they stopped it being vandalized and so on so you know know, these are small scale things but but you can see there there is hope in this way but it needs genuine it's a yeah chicken and egg thing because it, it it needs to be sparked from ground roots and how It's like a a paradox. How, from the outside, can you spark things from the ground roots? Uh, Once things are started, they can be supported. But if they're they're not started from the inside, then it's much harder for them to take take root. Yeah.
0: Um, A a lot of what we've been discussing um, relates to people's capacities or people's capabilities. Like, how can what can people do and what can people be in the world? How can they act in the world in such a way that may be beneficial uh, to them? And I know that you've done some work in this, uh, this approach, which is called the, the capability. Is capabilities or capability? I always, I always get confused. Anyway, um, this approach to, um, I, I guess, questions of, of, of justice. Um, so could you talk to me about um, the capability approach just generally and then we'll, we'll, we'll go on from there?
1: Very good. So the confusion you have is exactly the right confusion to have between the capability approach and the capabilities approach. Because to my mind, uh, there are actually two different theories here. One is the capability theory and the other is the capabilities
0: theory. We need many different <laughs> names. So I'm just going to say that right now. Confuse <laughs> a whole generation of yeah, scholars. Yeah.
1: Okay. So so let me start by um, saying how, how it is. Occurs and and really the economist who went on to win the Nobel Prize and is still writing and working now.
0: Sorry, I think you just froze there. Um, Could could you just repeat that?
1: Yeah. um, So the the capability approach is uh, the philosopher and economist Amartya Sen, uh, who was born in India. Uh, He's worked in the UK and the US as well um, and went on to win the Nobel Prize for economics and he uh, really is the founder of the capability approach and to explain how it it, explain the motivation really it's best really to contrast it with two other approaches to thinking about um, thinking about well-being and the question is or, or one question is if the government wants to take account of the well-being of its people, what should it measure? So one thing it could do is measure income or wealth, so, so money, in other words, or resources more broadly. And we do this a lot. So we we measure uh, how people are doing in terms of how much they own or how how much they uh, how much they have. But uh, Sen thinks this is unsatisfactory because different people have different needs and they convert resources into well-being at different rates so if you are a very large person who needs a lot of food then you need more money in order to get the same level of nutrition as other people um so in the developed world that may not seem like much of a example but in the developing world it might be quite important that some people have very different nutritional needs more more importantly if you're disabled you might need more resources just to live an ordinary life so people convert resources into well-being at different rates and so you say well okay that's fine let's just look at people's subject let's look at subjective measure like happiness or preference satisfaction there um, there are a number of problems one obvious one is well how do you actually measure that it's not easy to measure how happy people are um sen is more famous really for a different argument which is the argument about adaptive preferences which is the idea that people can express you know, perfect to be perfectly content with their life when they shouldn't be um so this is a problem of the happy slave or the person and and It it seems uh, maybe a bit of a fussy example, but if you look at uh, women in societies which are very oppressive, very often women will report they're perfectly happy with their role to be subservient to their husbands and basically a servant to their husbands and children, and they say they wouldn't want any change. And this gives us a dilemma because, on the one hand, you want to respect people's preferences. On the other hand, you want to say, well, Do you really have that preference? Would you have that preference if you knew other alternatives? Isn't that just a way of reconciling yourself to your situation so you're not depressed about it? So this is the thought about adaptive preferences that people get used to living in um, their prisons, uh, uh, oppressive circumstances, because the psychological cost of rebellion is just too high. So, Sen thinks, and many other people have thought, we can't take preferences for granted either. So, you have these two main theories one resource based, one preference based, and the problems with both of them. So, Sen says, instead of that, instead of thinking how much people have or how happy they are, let's think about what people can do with what they have. So, you can have two people with the same resources. But if one has higher needs, they'll have lower capabilities. Uh, So the same resources can yield different capabilities for different people. And so his view is that we ought to be paying attention to what people can do and be rather than what they have or how happy or unhappy they are. And, And this is really the main notion of the general capability approach what does to be here
0: mean
1: to be well um so to do is quite easy to understand so this is why you asked me about to be Uh, to to well to be could be um to be a parent um so some people for example don't have them the resources that will allow them to be uh successful parents um you some people are unable to get a job um so they can't be a worker can't be but but you're right it's 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 much less intuitive um
0: it it, does it extend it extends to things like um one with a house so one one who has shelter to be one with and to be one who is satiated um in terms of food yeah sorry
1: yes, yes sorry i i i missed the obvious thing so things like to be healthy um so if you go to martha nussbaum now the, the the first capability on her list is to to be physically healthy um and so that that is a capability some people have it's a capability that some other people don't have because they're living if you're living in damp housing doing difficult work and you're undernourished and don't have good clothes then you don't have a capability to be to be healthy um, so you're right to be satiated uh, to be sheltered so th- those would all be examples th- thank you yeah um, so the so the correlate word with capability is functioning so a capability is generally maybe always a capability for a functioning of some sort um, so it's, you can have the capability to be healthy that is that means you have everything you need to be healthy But because you've just gone for a skiing holiday and you've broken your legs, uh, you don't have the functioning of being healthy. Um, Sen's example is, imagine a wealthy person who has decided to go on a fast for some reason. Um, That person may be malnourished. They don't have the functioning, but they do have the capability. So um, a capability, a crude way of putting it, is the capability is an opportunity for a functioning whether you take that opportunity is up to you so it brings um it it brings freedom into it now i don't know if we want to go into the complications here but let me just expand on this comment about the difference between the capability and the capabilities
0: because i don't know how to refer to it i I, I do both (laughs) and in my notes i don't know what i'm searching for am i searching for capabilities or capability so it saved me you know probably a few hours yeah.
1: Just, uh, yeah well just like any part of philosophy, probably different people understand this in different ways, so i 'm just going to tell you my way of understanding it okay um, so so when Sen introduces uh, the idea of a capability, he talks about your capability set, and um, it, take take a take a very simple case. Um, the, the only capabilities we're interested in is a capability for shelter and the capability for nutrition. So suppose you're a homeless person and uh, someone has just given you some money and um, you can either spend it on shelter for the night or food, but not both. So, so you can't both be nourished or at, and have shelter. You can do one or the other. So, um, your capability, so you have the capability for shelter, no food, or food, and no shelter. That is your capability set that day. So you have these two alternative sets of functionings. You can have a set of functionings that has nutrition and no shelter, or the set of functionings that has shelter and no nutrition. And it's up to you which one you choose. Now, if we take a normal person uh, in normal circumstances, we have choices we're making all the time between different functionings. So the person I uh, talked about who had the skiing accident, they had a set of functionings that didn't include broken legs, they, you know, they had an option set, they had many option sets in which they had full health. Preferable they just decided to take one, preferable ones, yeah. Uh, but they they took a, a choice that risked their health, and that's where they ended up. So, so their capability for SEN is all these possible different sets of functionings that they can face. So a capability is a set of sets of functionings on that view it's hard to do this without a whiteboard
0: yeah yeah, but, yeah. so a capability can, is a set it's a set of a set of functionings did you say yeah yeah okay uh, it's so it's set. not so it i'm it, it's not the the number of capabilities I, I think about it in terms of just like number of options that i have access yeah. to so yeah op- uh, so
1: Okay, so do that. So, 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 so first of all, it's uh, the options you have, but each of those different options will be a set of functionings. Yes. Uh, so, so that, things that's that have been realised to
0: enable the, like the when, when you take a, when you make your choice, you are selecting a set of functionings that are necessary for that option to be realised. Great.
1: So if, you, if we go back to the homeless person, the way I set it up, they have two options. Um, you know, one option is to take the bed, the other option is to take the food. Um, so those options present them with different functioning sets. Yeah. Um, uh, and so that's the simplest example I can imagine. Uh, you know, most of us are faced with yeah, enormously indefinite branching options. Yeah. Uh, but, but so that's our capability is to decide which of those options we take, and those options will present us with different capability sets. So, um, okay, sorry, different functioning sets. Okay, so so that's Sen's view. My reading of Sen's view. Martha Nussbaum's view is much more straightforward. So for for Nussbaum, it seems that there's a type of one, one match between each capability and each functioning. So she will say, um, she'll ask, do you have a capability for bodily health? And that means, can you achieve the functioning of bodily health? And you know, do you have a capability for play? That's another one of the capabilities on her list. And can you achieve the functioning of play? And of course, there are gonna be some people who can't achieve the functioning of play because they have to work all day, every day. So young children in developing world, um, you know, mothers with heavy domestic responsibilities in a job, maybe they lack the capability for play, but th- meaning they can't achieve the functioning for play. So the way I read it, for Sen, capability is all of these. Capability is the big picture. Mm. It, this is your capability. Your capability is these options of functioning sets. For and Nussbaum, the capability matches off against the functionings one by one. And so we talk about your: Do you have the functioning? Do you have the capability for religious freedom? Can you achieve the functioning of religious worship?
0: Okay. Okay, well, yeah. And
1: the, the term capability and tease, is that the... Well, so so the term capabilities yes. comes from. So Martha Nussbaum very famously set out a list of 10 capabilities. Um, so these, and I'm not going to be able to remember them all, but they begin with bodily health, uh, security, affiliation. Affiliation, yeah. Con- uh, control over your environment. um practical reason so she she lists out these 10 capabilities and her view is a good life achieves a sort of high threshold level on each of these 10 and when you ask her what to do in terms if you can't achieve all 10 um she says well that's a situation of injustice If, if, if someone can't achieve all 10 then the world is unjust and we ought to rearrange the world so they can. Uh, Whereas the economists, so so Sen is an economist as well, economists are always interested in trade-offs, even when there's injustice involved. Because if you're the policymaker and you're faced with having to decide whether to give people more food or more shelter, you can't just say, well, this is an injustice, so I'm not saying anything. Whereas that seems to be Nussbaum's, Few. Maybe I'm being unfair to her, but I don't know anything in her work where she has tried to deal with uh, the trade-offs between different capabilities if you if they can't all be achieved because of lack of resources.
0: Whereas Sen, we can't just leave it to the, the individual because a lot of these things need to be provided by the state. It's not just a yep. matter of the, the individual selecting or choosing these things because a lot of these things are dependent upon the state.
1: Yeah, so a lot of them do need resources. We don't identify them with resources, but they need they need resources. And if you have, yeah, so yeah, you've made the point. So we're dependent on the state to help us achieve the capabilities. She says a just world will bring everyone up to a sufficient level. Um, we can agree with that, but it doesn't tell us what to do if we find ourselves in an unjust world.
0: So if we, I, I'm um, very partial to to this approach. Um, it just really resonates with me on an intuitive level, and it makes me think that one of the like if, and this harkens back to the how we opened our discussion with what is the purpose of government, um, and if we you know accept that at least a part of it is the the flourishing of the individual, that the constituents are living uh, lives that they deem to be as good as can be. Um, I, I, my question is but the the way I think about it is everyone has a unique set of everyone is unique and that which will uh, cause one person to be happy may not do so for the other. So what we should do, and this is the general idea um, of liberalism or liberal societies, um, please correct me if I'm wrong though, that, you know, by increasing the freedom of choice available to, to people, by increasing the the capability set that they have, people can go and choose um, a path, a branching tree, uh, you know, a, a, a set of functionings that um, suits them best. And then, if you were to just kind of um, take, I'm, I'm just thinking about it as like a, a bar of, you know, uh, if if you were to quantify it, like uh, you know, if you are to quantify flourishing, that which promotes the greatest degree of um, what I think of as degrees of freedoms. Um, or these, these functioning sets, these capability sets, will most likely, or will likely, in, um, result in the in the the state or the the society that has the greatest amount of flourishing. Right? It's like this optimization. I don't know if I don't know if it's a good idea to think about these things <laughs> in quantitative terms. But this is how I how I kind of think about it. Um, does that kind of is there anything wrong there? Or maybe that's well, not with really anything wrong, but. <laughs>
1: So, so it's a tempting idea, definitely. And uh, if, you're, if you want to be liberal, then, then one of the impulses behind liberalism is not to try to impose your own judgments on the quality of different choices. And so then the thought would be to make people freer is just to give them more and more choices. Um, but but that has been questionable.
0: Also, yeah, what kind of choices, right? There's like choices between types, flavors of ketchup, or you know, instruments to play, or roles that you can play in society. Like there are like I don't know tears, or I don't know what how you describe them. But sorry for cutting you off. Yeah,
1: well you're exactly right, and you bring to mind um, there were a few papers written in the 1970s by a lefty. British political philosophers had just gone to New York for the first time and they were taken by their wives to the uh, lipstick counter in Macy's or where it was, and seeing you know, a thousand different shades of red lipstick and thinking, can't This is much freedom. <laughs> there can be too much there can certainly be too much choice right too much choice yeah. yeah yeah um so it's so so what we want to say is it's not the number so joseph raz for example would say it's not the number of choices you have it's um or the number of options you have is it's the degree to which these are, are valuable and so we don't necessarily increase people's freedom just by giving them more options of the same kind they've already got um but there you know we begin to um move into territory that makes liberals a bit nervous um because it means that someone is valuing these different options and who has the right to put to say one thing is better than another so you know raz says well do you really believe that yeah compare the life of a drug addict and a subsistence farmer which one of these is more valuable um i mean shortly after he said that there was a Massive crisis in farming, and in particularly in Wales, and subsistence farmers started killing themselves. So, it's uh, maybe not um, so, always and so when obvious. When you're saying
0: value, do you mean the value that the individual perceives of their own life, like like the, or the value to society? Well, that,
1: no, uh, not the value to society, but the, but but you as an individual, which uh, which would you prefer to be? Yeah, or, yeah. Um, which would you prefer to be, or which do you admire more, for example? Mm-hmm um because there's this sort of hyper liberalism that says we can't make judgments and, and raz wanted to say to people and he is right the example might not be the best one but raz wants to say you're fooling yourself because you're making judgments all the time and, yeah. and and there is pretty much a convergence on judgments because we know what a good human life human beings are biological uh, animals there's such a thing as a good human life and not such a good human life and maybe it's quite hard to define that um but i i think if, if we go back to what you were saying the the idea that what is the point of government is to give people flourishing lives um it's very hard to disagree with that, isn't it? That, uh, this is what yeah. we want from our government.
0: At, le- at, at least, like, that's one of them. That's one of the things. Yeah. Uh, yeah. That, that's a big one. Um, and I kind of, this is just on a, on an aside, but I wish our politicians would, I wish someone would, would just ask them this, you know, to the face, you know, to <laughs> Boris Johnson or, you know, uh, yeah. Donald Trump, like, what's the purpose of government? And, you know, just, okay, well, if that's if that's the case, then this, this, and this, I don't think it would actually work, particularly maybe not with Trump, but I just feel like this... This discussion of what is the purpose of like what what the hell are we doing and why mm. should be more central to our yeah. <laughs> public discourse
1: yeah well so I, so I absolutely agree with that, you know, that 's how I make my living so <laughs> how, how, could
0: not, how,
1: could, how, how could I not agree um, but the, it, it 's tricky though because if you have anyone who 's very thoughtful, the politicians they 'll say they will say something equivalent to this even if they don 't use the same words. But then you see the the question for a policymaker is so there are two quest- two questions. Um, one is how how do we make sense of this in practical terms? It's all very well saying yeah, we want everyone to have a flourishing life. But what is that what can we do as a we've government got decisions to sense? make
0: we've we've they've, yeah, we, they've got big decisions to make and like I don't envy these people, you know. Uh, yeah. it must be difficult <laughs>
1: But it, it it's not even that it's big, di- big difficulties. It's how do you translate this aspiration of giving everyone a, a flourishing life into specific policy objectives? And, and so you might say that actually, this is what governments are doing because yeah, they want full employment. They want everyone to have a home. Um, they, they want mm. to encourage, most governments want to encourage people to have strong family lives, if they can they want kids educated so what they're trying to do is lay the foundations for people to have flourishing lives um there are questions about whether they've got it right about whether these are the foundations for flourishing life there are questions about whether they've got the distribution between different people right so are they neglecting some to advance others um are they doing it in ways that are not appreciated are counterproductive but also they've got the problem um and so this is what this is one of the things i think that my fellow political philosophers have not completely absorbed which is when, when you're thinking about, about public policy almost everything is a decision about making a change rather than bringing something out of nothing. So. In other words, if we, you know, if we sat down and have a discussion about the theory of justice, you know, two-week seminar, very intensive, we, we might get some agreement on what's the best theory of justice. The idea of then giving it to the government saying, look, this is the best theory of justice. Do this. I'll say, well, this is ridiculous. How can I get there from here? You know, I'd need a hundred years and everyone's goodwill. I can't do it. Right. So I... So I can't just wave a magic wand and turn us from where we are there. We're in this situation. We've got this level of unemployment. We've got these problems about race relations. We've got this level of alcoholism. We've got this level of drug addiction. We've got these teenage pregnancies. We've got these people in prison. We've got all these people living lives that most people would not regard as flourishing lives, or many people would not regard as flourishing lives. What do we do about those? Those are our problems right now. Um, Do we try to leave it to the free markets, deregulate and let free enterprise ride us to somewhere? Or is that naive? Is that going to have the opposite effect? Do we have to have a big redistribution? Do we have to build new public institutions? What can I do? And also, I mean, this goes back to your point about big decisions. Uh, What can I do that's going to get me re-elected as well get my party re-elected? Because if I'm pushing all the the sacrifices on this generation for the sake of the better tomorrow, then that's not going to do me any good either.
0: Yeah, that incentive's not a very good one. I think it's Mm. the biggest one. Um, At least it seems to be when you listen to some of the, the rhetoric. Um, there's something I, I want to just go back to um, about the the number of choices one has access to and how, you know, more choices isn't necessarily better. But I think mm. it, it was that it depends on the quality of the options available, right? So different choices of lipstick may not be that beneficial, but potential professions may be, you know, uh, so... Uh, my, if I have the opportunity of being a blacksmith or a farmer, that's not that great. But if I have the opportunity of all of those things, but also teacher, um, graphic designer, um, you know, political philosopher, and you know, the, the capacity or the capability of being a parent and a, you know, all these um, other things, which aren't as I'd say trivial as um, as as you know, makeup or flavors of you know, well, condiments. Um, I, I feel like that, the, the the quantity of choice for more valuable, uh, I don't know what you'd call them, capabilities, um, that seems to be um, relevant or worth you know, worth uh, exploring because I just, I think that I would rather be in a society where let's say I am genetically predisposed to just being the greatest sitar player of all time, or maybe an ancient instrument that exists today, but um, existed, you know, 500 years ago, but also exists, exists today. Um, Actually no, a better example would be, I have the capability of being, the greatest um, virtual reality developer of all time. So this is this new technology, which is only coming into the fore. But if I was born five hundred years ago and I didn't have this this genetic makeup, that I would never realize the 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 life of being a, a, you know the world's greatest virtual reality developer by virtue of the fact that I didn't I didn't grow up in, the, in a society that had that as an opportunity. Um, so this idea of like increasing like the the more opportunities I have available to me seems to be something that I you know intuitively intuitively think is of as as good because we're all unique in our own ways in in our own ways and having the potential to chart a course that suits me best seems to be uh, like a good thing.
1: Okay, um, so I think I agree with you. I, I think the uh, it goes. To the, the issue we were talking about earlier about the talents we have and the backgrounds mm. we have that that um, that yeah, as it turns out at the moment, you know, if, if you're in the society we're living in, if you're seven foot six tall and very strong and athletic, you can, <laughs> <It's> earn, <basketball. laughs> you can earn you you can an absolute fortune. Uh, if you were living a hundred years ago, you might have been put in the circus as a freak. Um, so you know. Uh, what counts as a talent very often is highly socially contingent. Hmm. I mean, you know, we can debate how much this is. So, you know, if, if you have a very quick mind, for example, um, it, it may be that that is going to be a universal talent. But it, it might be hard to think for society as well. That's a problem. On the other hand, it might lead you into trouble if you're it leads you to criticize the authorities in a very repressive state so it it could it could be that your mind under those circumstances is a disadvantage rather than an advantage
0: so in in the capability literature is it um is this notion of just increasing the degrees of freedom made available to the individual is that um something that's a given or i may be phrasing it the wrong way but is this i mean obviously there are like base capabilities that need to be met but what's the basics have been covered. Um, is just increasing the the set of capabilities or potential functionings uh, something to aspire towards? Well,
1: so the capabilities literature is vast now. I mean, there, there are probably yeah, tens of thousands of academic papers that have been written about the capability approach because it's been used in, in all fields. Um, it's used in health economics. It's used... Yeah. In law, um, anthropology, pretty much every journal, um, the, you know, someone discovers a capability approach and realizes this is the best way of conceptualizing something within their field, which it is, um, at a very general level. Uh, the, the problem is getting down to the specifics mm-hmm. of it and, and how do you implement it. And so this is why there's such a literature, because it's very, very appealing at a general level and seems right at a general level, um, but it's much harder to make it concrete. I think if you um, talk to, uh, if you look at Sen's writings and people who follow with Sen, uh, Sen would say the uh, capabilities we have is really sort of indefinite, that you can you can salami slice them so you can talk about my capability to lift my teacup today which is different from my capabilities to lift my teacup tomorrow something
0: like so different levels of infinity right there's an infinite yeah. amount of numbers between zero and one but you know 10 bigger than all of those
1: yeah uh, so so if we just want to if you just wanted to list all the capabilities just spend the rest of your life listing them if you if that's what you wanted to do um so for HIP Sen, the important thing is to work out which are the ones that are politically important. So if we go back to that question, you know, what is the aim of government? Which are the capabilities that government should be paying attention to? Um, so I think, for example, uh, governments have not paid enough attention to the capability of affiliation, which would be you know, people being able to have a support network and we're seeing this now in the covid crisis that uh, there are people who are on their own who don't have a support network but we're also seeing these informal support networks growing up uh, because people wanted to help their neighbors i'm sure all over the world um yeah, if there's a old person living on their own as my, my mother is um she was having to turn away favors because so many people wanted to do her shopping for her so <laughs> that's a lovely that's, that's good to know <laughs> That's lovely. <laughs> so you had people fighting over who was going to do the supermarket shop and being offended that someone else had done it. So you know you you can get into that that type of situation. But of course, this is an unusual. We're living through unusual times at the moment. Mm. Um, but the the, the um, question for political philosophy is: of the many capabilities, which are the ones that governments should be specially interested in? and be worried about if people are not achieving. And this is really where Martha Nussbaum uh, does better than Sen because Sen just lists a few and then says it's for each country to work out which are the ones that they want. So he has a much more pluralistic view and different countries can have different accounts, whereas Nussbaum has tried to come up with a list of 10 universal capabilities which will take different shapes in different countries, but she thinks, or different cultures, but she thinks all of them are relevant, or all, all um, forms of human existence. I think she's probably right. Um, it doesn't mean that she solved all the problems. I think because um, a lot more interpretation is needed. Uh, I tried with my colleague, uh, a co-writer, Avner de Chalit, we tried to do some empirical work talking to ordinary people about what they thought about the capabilities. And th- it was very useful, but um, half the interview was spent just trying to explain to people what capabilities are. So, you know, we ha- we've had our discussion about it. And a lot of people did the interview without really knowing what they were being interviewed about. And so e- even though it's a good concept for for theory it's not a good concept for operational research. And if you talk about needs, for example, if you talk about people's basic needs, that's much better understood and you can have a much better mm. conversation.
0: I think it's and just it's the terminology, it's just the words. Yeah. It's just, they're, they make it, they're more abstract. That's, I think that's yeah. the only problem. Like, yeah. Opportunities are very concrete, you know, and taking yeah. and choosing something, it's concrete.
1: Yeah. But, but even need, you see, if you said, well, what do you need for a good life?
0: I need you coffee. Get...
1: <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> okay. Okay. So maybe that wasn't the right thing to say, but anyway, well, you, but you I, I think that was the point. Yeah.
0: yeah. You know, like I yeah. don't really need yeah. it, but you know, God, yeah. sometimes it feels like it.
1: Yeah. Okay. So, yeah. So, um, the question you asked me is uh, in the capability literature, are people saying the more capabilities the more your freedom is, and, um, I, I think, again, that goes back to a similar thing to the lipstick. So if the mm-hmm. capabilities is lift my teacup now and tomorrow and the day after and day after and day after, um, that doesn't compensate for not having religious freedom, for example. So so we do want to give a weighting to the different capabilities. And this is you know, one one of the the worries, I'm not saying it's a refutation, but one of the worries people have had in the capability movement is the degree to which um, it's perfectionist in the sense of being non-liberal or or, uh, paternalistic, because the capability approach is telling people what's good for them. And Most of us don't like that very much. We don't think it's for others to tell us what's good for us.
0: Yeah, I'd say that the good thing is a lot of them are based on basic biology, like affiliation, for instance. Like we know that loneliness kills, and we know that you know shelter and and I mean it is just like the normal human brain desires to be in a state of good health. So I think there the good the good thing is there are some like biology. The, the the nature of reality grants us some constraints. Um, so that, that that is fortunate.
1: Um, yeah, I mean that's a very perceptive comment because the one of the inspirations for Nussbaum anyway for the capability breaches is, is Aristotle, and uh, you know, Aristotle also wanted to root the good for human beings in our biological nature, and so so a lot of this idea of flourishing is you know what is it to flourish as a human being, and. Yeah, If you take another animal, um, a dog, yeah, you know, we we know what it is for a dog to flourish or to look like it's flourishing. It has to have a shiny nose and a waggy tail or something and boundless energy, and that's a flourishing dog. So what's a flourishing human being? Well, it's not a wagging tail, but it's maybe being absorbed in their work, having good relations with others, having a good place to live, opportunities for play, and so on. And so we whether it's instinctive or learnt, I don't know, but we do have a capacity to be able to judge of other people whether they're living a good life or not. And so you you can look at one of your friends who seems to be able to do everything. They're out they Publish their book, but they're on the golf course and then they're going surfing and then they're going to a family wedding or something. You think, well, that's a, it's exhausting. That's what a good human life looks like. Whereas you've got someone else who's obsessed with, you know, putting their stationery in order or something and spends all all day tidying their bookshelves all day every day I think, well, okay, maybe that's what they want. But as far as I'm concerned, that's not a good human life. That's an obsessive human life is very narrow Say, so. yeah
0: um so one more question which will take us away from the capability approach but it's just one that i think is kind of um more appropriate or it's uh it's given the times given the coronavirus and our freedoms being constrained um given the virus uh our capabilities freedoms, like what's the relationship between freedom and the capability approach? Uh, Because freedoms is something that we seem to be incredibly important, but it's not obvious what it is. And everyone, lots of people have different definitions of it. And I'm just curious because to me, like I I see them as one and the same. I have, I have freedom to act in a certain number of ways. And I have the, like the capacity for me to choose choices, you know, that's I have the freedom to do. So Um, do you have any comments there?
1: So, so I think um, uh, that's definitely a way of looking at it. And um, the, one of the advantages of the capability approach, as far as Sen is concerned, is an approach that emphasizes freedom. Uh, because the other approaches, resource-based and the uh, happiness-based, don't have a direct place for freedom in them. So, so if we're judging someone's well being by how much resources they have, we're just looking at their money in the bank, say. Or if we're looking at their happiness, we're just seeing how happy they are. And um whether they achieve that through their own freedom, whether they have freedom to do other things is not part of the calculation. But of course, those are very simple views and there are complex hybrid views that can bring freedom into welfare and freedom in, into resources. So you know, there are lots of opportunities to put different bits of the- theories together to develop more sophisticated theories. But you see, um, freedom is... The role of freedom is really interesting here because um, I did have a debate um with Martha Nussbaum about the uh, capability for health so if you think about it, you know what is it we value about health uh, do we do we value you know, the freedom to be healthy or not to be healthy depending on whether you choose to be now that seems to me rather odd um it's health we value not the freedom to be healthy or not to be healthy now it might be we value the freedom of how to become healthy so maybe you exercise and i don't and i eat yeah i eat carefully and you don't and we choose to be healthy in our different ways that's right so we need freedom about whether we choose to be healthy but if we find someone you know, has the freedom to be healthy but chooses not to you know, we don't celebrate their freedom uh, what we do is think they are maybe depressed or something. We yeah. put taxes yeah. on their
0: cigarettes, you know, it's like, the- <laughs> well, <laughs> yeah, but we don't say good for
1: you. You've just decided you're not going to be healthy. That was your choice, mate. Um, we, we say,
0: maybe oh, not, <laughs> no, we,
1: we, we fail. If if people are making that choice, we fail as a society in some way or something has failed. Um, so it's, to what I would say, and um, I'm not sure what Nussbaum thinks of- about this is is that it's actually quite hard to generalize over the capabilities that the, the different capabilities are different so so when I give her this example she gives me back uh, religious freedom we say well the point about religious freedom is to have the freedom whether or not to go to church it's not to be forced to go to church so it's not as if if I have that freedom and I don't go to church everyone should be saying oh my god he's not gone to church what should we do about it and I agree with that so in the case of religious freedom what matters is freedom to choose in the case of health what matters is not freedom to choose but to be healthy mm. and so the different so i think w- one of the problems with the capability approach is that a lot of complexity is missed at the level of abstraction that we you know, we talk about these capabilities as if they're all the same and they all have the same relation to freedom but there's a lot of different things packed in and when and we it- start looking at it
0: I see like a taxonomy of them in a way, like the religious freedom, you, you have a, a, you have a choice to either go or not to go, whereas to church or, you know, whatever, but when it comes to health, um, being healthy grants you access to a set of capabilities that you wouldn't have access to otherwise. For instance, if I'm bedridden, I can't go and play football or I can't, I can't do a whole slew of things, you know, it's very easy to imagine what they are. So I feel like this just, I mean, it does, I guess, probably this is in the literature, it's just expansive and I haven't really explored it too much, but this taxonomy of capabilities um, could probably help.
1: Yeah, <laughs> that's very interesting. So, so two things I'd say about that. So one thing you've pointed out, so being healthy is a functioning, but it's also a capability. So some some functionings are also a capability for something else, which complicates the picture. Um, But the the book I wrote with Avner de Disadvantage, where we talked about the capability and made use of the capability approach, uh, we introduced a couple of things. And they're they're really just bits of terminology, but they're quite helpful. Social policy. So we we talked about um, what we called fertile functionings. So fertile functioning is if you have that functioning, it brings other things with it. And what you've just described, being healthy, obviously is a fertile functioning because it it leads to good things um and we also had the concept of a corrosive disadvantage which is if it goes badly for you then it's likely to lead to other bad things and and they're not always mirror image because um i mean i could talk about this there's a mistake people often make in social policy which is they, they think if we know the cause of something we know the cure for it which as soon as you put it like that it's obviously false because we know what causes lung cancer we don't know what the cure is for it. um that's yes yeah, smoking causes lung cancer stopping smoking doesn't take it away again um so so what we say is from the point of view of social policy things like drug addiction are uh, corrosive disadvantages and yeah, your life will be wrecked if you're a drug addict curing someone of their addiction won't give them their life back again Uh, it it will help them definitely but it won't put them back where they were before so when you've got a corrosive disadvantage when you know there are corrosive disadvantages we have urgent policy reasons to prevent them to stop them happening Uh, if we found a fertile functioning we've got urgent policy reasons to put our resources there because we get this sort of multiplier effect of other functionings as well. So so this was our recommendation for the integration of political philosophy, social science, and policy. The social scientists should be telling us what these corrosive disadvantages and fertile functionings are, and policymakers should be putting in place policies to stop the formation of corrosive disadvantages and encourage the formation of fertile functionings. There we are. That's the policy formula in in one minute. <laughs>
0: yeah, I see them as spirals. As, you know, spirals of what's what's the term? Spirals of uh, anyway. Doesn't matter. <laughs> virtuous. Yes, that's the virtuous one.
1: spirals. Yeah, that's yeah. the one. That's the one. And. And then the others are vicious. You have vicious spirals going down, and virtuous spirals
0: going there up. There we go. There we go. Yeah. Um, awesome. Well, um, I think we'll leave the capability approach there. Um, this, the, the coronavirus uh, has presented us with quite uh, interesting choices to make. Um, you know, all of them. Which, all all of them have trade offs, and one of them is the the economic impact of lockdowns. You know, uh, the the state really um, coming down in some places with you know a strong hand and limiting people's freedoms uh, in order to you know quell uh, the virus. Um, and as we've seen across the world. Here, in Australia, uh, the US, um, all over the place. Even people who were once cheering the uh, the the healthcare personnel and now taking to the streets, protesting masks and lockdowns and all that. So there's this is the, the topic of freedom is is one that uh, seems to be on everyone's uh, lips um, when we can bear to talk about the coronavirus, <laughs> because I think everyone's a little bit tired of it as well. Um, so what? <laughs> how can we view the, this question of freedom and uh, what we are entitled to do and when are our freedoms being um, impinged upon and, and, and when are they not? Um, I'm not asking for a particular answer of what is right and wrong. Cause I know there are varying um, uh, perspectives on this, but perhaps you could shed light on, on some of them and how, you know, how could we, you know, if we're having an argument with, you know your auntie at the dinner table saying, "I'm not wearing my mask um, because this, these are my rights. I have you know uh, the the right to do what I want." What could we say to that auntie or that uh, that friend who is you know really steadfast in?
1: Yeah. Um, well, I I don't know that there's anything you can say to an aunt to persuade them, but uh, <laughs> you you could have a go. Uh, so yeah, a couple of things that come to mind. So yeah, um, in if you travel in the northeast United States, uh, you see the license plates from New Hampshire, which has got the slogan, live free or die. Okay. And uh, so it's, it's a bit alarming actually then to go into New Hampshire and see all these cars with a license plate that says live free or die as a state slogan. And, uh, you know, so I see something like that. I can't help but reflect on it. And um, it is interesting question about how you balance life and liberty and i think in normal circumstances we're quite happy to give up small liberties for the sake of preserving life um so there are certain things like laws against pollution um you know i can't open a glue factory in the center of london say sending off toxic fumes that are going to poison the kids in the playground next door um, so so we accept limits on our liberty to preserve the lives of others uh, we also accept limits on our liberty to preserve the lives of ourselves uh, so pretty much every country has a limit to what you can buy in terms of the strength of alcoholic drinks for example that you can't you can can't buy well these come and go in different countries but or poisons so there's certain poisons uh, prescription drugs I can't buy without uh, the doctor's permission so yeah is it a limit on my liberty that I can't just go out and buy a cancer drug without prescription and maybe it is maybe it isn't but it's it's not a serious limitation on my liberty and it's not one person I would want to fight for Uh, but there could be limitations on my liberty that I would want to fight for. So um, I'm fairly placid, I don't really fight about very much, but I can imagine circumstances in which um, if I was part of a group that is being persecuted and maybe people are being tortured and humiliated, maybe then I might risk my life for it. So we... uh, So the trade-offs between life and a simple notion of liberty are very common, and we're very prepared to give up liberty for the sake of other people's lives, and sometimes for the sake of our own lives. So wearing a helmet on a motorcycle, wearing a seatbelt. Okay, so why is wearing a mask any different to um, wearing a seatbelt or wearing a helmet on a motorcycle? Um, so one thing is it's new and people don't like it and people don't like change. So this is just a, um,
0: and it's pretty in your face. You know, excuse the pun. But it's yeah. Just like, it's, so, yeah.
1: Yeah. It's not very nice, but, but I'm sure I'd, I've never ridden a motorcycle, but I'm sure people who wear a helmet don't like it very much and much rather, rather not or a bicycle helmet. So these, these in the seatbelt or seatbelt is nothing anymore, but uh, yeah, people were opposed to wearing seatbelts because they didn't want to be told what to do. So I think the, um, the mask protest seems to me to go along with a sort of conspiracy theory that the risks are being exaggerated so so i think that if you if you go to the mask protest i mean i saw one recently in London where someone was being interviewed one of the mask protests who was claiming that um, the care homes in the UK were like Nazi concentration camps where old people were being sent to be slaughtered. And so the reason why so many people are dying is that we are killing them and that uh, this has to be better known. So she was out protesting thinking that and so she, said she was using the anti-mask protest to make this sort of conspiracy theory that all around the world old people are being killed or
0: something. I have to spend some one sense. day on her Twitter feed, you know, imagine what you'd see.
1: Yeah, exactly. So, and there are thousands, tens of thousands of people like that, um, and they gather in here in Trafalgar Square for the protest. So, um, so I, th- I think the the ge- the general framework of the argument is that if there's sufficiently demonstrated risk to other people's life or your life then there are good reasons acceptable reasons for the government to impose quite strong restrictions on you Um, now then there are two types of opponents to that Um, one opponent says i disagree with this conditional that that opponent says that no, even if the risks are high, it should be my own choice, um, and the other person comes off as more reasonable, saying, "Yes, I agree. if the risks are high, the government should be able to do this, but i don 't agree the risks are high right? so you 've got this coalition between conspiracy theorists and and a type of arch libertarian um, and you know, both of them are completely unreasonable positions as far as I can tell uh, the the um, mask is not for your benefit it's for other people's benefits um it's like the reason we ban smoking in restaurants um now that now that's the equivalent that's a moral equivalent to banning smoking in restaurants there were a few people who smoked in restaurants um not very many M- more people seem to be against the, the mask but that's w- w- what it is it's a small inconvenience for you to try to reduce the harm that you might be doing to other people and the most important thing here is that um, liberalism, said, liberalism doesn't say you can go and harm other people as you like. Liberalism says you can't harm other people. Uh, but, of course, everything we do risks harm to other people. And so, there, the, so this then becomes a really difficult question of balance because you say, well, what is the level of acceptable harm to others? We've accepted it with driving, so when I drive a car, I'm risking death to anyone who comes anywhere near me because a you know, tire could burst, I could lose concentration. So I'm, I'm putting other people's lives at peril. But the thought is that that's such a low risk and driving is such a good convenience that that is a A balance that we should take so we set the risk trade-off in favor of the action but notice we make sure people have safety checks on their cars we make sure they don't drive drunk so we do everything to make the risk as low as possible but we say it's an acceptable risk in this case what are we asking people to do not wear a mask wear a mask Is it a big deal? For some people, it might be if you've got breathing problems, okay, but then we let you off. Um, We give you an exemption. But for the ordinary person, it's just a minor inconvenience, and it could be saving lives. So the uh, risk-benefit balance goes the other way, in in my view. So um, I don't see this as a serious matter of freedom. Um, If it turns out that wearing a mask is bad for you, So there's also people here who claim that wearing a mask reduces your oxygen intake and can damage your health. If that is true, then we've got another argument to have. If it really is true that we're euthanizing large numbers of old people in care homes, then we've got a lot to talk about, not just masks. (laughs) Um, but, uh, (laughs) um, but, But it seems to me that it's a misuse of arguments to think that given what we know, Um, there's good reason against wearing masks. I mean, lockdown is interesting as well. You you might think that lockdown has gone too far in some cases. Um, Just
0: just for down here in Australia, yeah, you may not be aware, but the state of Victoria, well, Melbourne has been on lockdown for a significant period of time, but they brought in curfews as well. So, you know, a lot of people are, you know, like... we understand the need for lockdown, but why can't we go outside after eight o'clock, for instance? Yeah. So like this, yeah. this, these sorts of questions are being brought up and, you know, they're saying that, I think they might've been the, the, the premier. He's like the guy in charge. I think his name's Dan. I might've seen a hashtag dictator Dan or something, but they're talking about, you know, authoritarianism, yeah. you know, strong, um, strong displays of control.
1: Yeah. Well, that is a worry and, and you want to see the evidence for it. Um, so what's coming in here? is you know, the pubs have been open, uh, but they, you need to social distance and um, wipe everything down. But infections have been spiking. They've been uh, doubling, uh, doubling every seven days now. And so last night the government introduced a new measure uh, to close pubs at 10 o'clock in the evening. So up to now they've been able to open their normal hours, which in some cases is you know, 2 o'clock, 3 o'clock in the morning even, as long as they're social distancing. And they, they so uh, many pubs would normally open till eleven or twelve, so they're losing the last hour or two of business. And for a lot of pubs, particularly at the weekend, that is where they are at their most. Uh, most busy. Um, and you're seeing on Twitter people saying, well, does the government think that the virus goes home or only comes out after 10 o'clock? Or you know, do they think you can't get infected before 10 o'clock? And of course, the government doesn't think that. But what, what they're thinking is there are a lot of different factors to balance. And um, we need business to keep going in a viable way if we can because this, we're, we're not just talking about profits, we're talking about people's jobs here. Um, and maybe they can keep going, or many of them can keep going, if we keep them open till 10. Mm. And people won't be so drunk. Um, yeah. They may
0: just try to get more in their system before 10 o'clock. You know, they may see it as a race
1: <laughs> yeah it's it's possible yeah and we've got the we've got the universities coming back now and um you yeah, students and now just this week and next week they're just starting university up and down the country and so as we know uh what Many students doing their first week is stay fresh, out as late as they week, can. right?
0: Is that that's what yeah. it's called in the UK?
1: Yeah. 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 Fresher week. So, fresh a week, there are a lot of drunken students walking around town. But if and it's, I think this is quite a sensible move because it allows them to get, go out and have a couple of drinks and socialize, but without losing inhibition. And you know, when you lose inhibition, social distancing goes.
0: Um, a lot more so. goes than just social distancing
1: including <laughs> Eric. <memory. laughs> yeah. Well, that is, that is, so I'm told, so I'm told, yeah. Um, so, the, the, I think the view we're taking is that if you have um, very punitive restrictions, maybe 90% of people will follow them, but 10% won't and of those some significant proportion will violate them in a very dangerous way because they might think once you've violated the rule you may as well if you're going to be hung for a lamb be hung for a sheep and so we it's a very delicate balance to give people an area where they can be slightly irresponsible safely rather than making them encouraging them to be grossly irresponsible and maybe doing a lot more harm. But yeah, it's an impossible, impossible situation.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Um, I know, I know we're running, I wouldn't say short on time, but we'll, we'll be wrapping up um, soon. Um, is there anything that you think is incredibly important to talk about, uh, or to any message that you'd like to share, or if not that, um, is there anything that you're very excited about, um, <laughs> okay. in, in the world? So, very, very, oppos- they're opposites, but uh, I think both um, have something to do with strong opinion or passion.
1: Okay, so, so one thing I think has become very clear in the COVID crisis is that, um, you know, society is divided in many, many ways. Uh, there are all sorts of structural inequalities, and um, we notice them, we try to do something about them, we're not very effective, but we, you know, policymakers do try to attend to injustice and disadvantage. In times of crisis, that becomes very hard, and uh, natural divisions in society—not natural, but existing divisions in society—become exaggerated. So, you know, I'm sitting here doing my work today. Um, it's not at all inconvenient to be talking into a camera and microphone rather than getting on a train to go somewhere and talk in person um probably the lockdown has saved me money um so i'm in one of these privileged groups where i have my guaranteed income lower spending less inconvenience okay there, there are a few things but on the whole a lot for people like me lockdown has been fine and for people with the country houses even better people with the country houses and cars um yeah they're having a great time um Whereas people who are doing jobs that they have to do on the street, like delivery drivers, say that they're not being celebrated like health workers, grocery workers. There are lots of people who are putting themselves in danger. They were getting ill first uh, or people losing their jobs. So there are plenty of things where um, existing inequalities have become exaggerated. We're seeing this uh, in many countries that ethnic people from ethnic minority backgrounds are dying more, getting the virus more, older people are in greater trouble, poor people in greater trouble. So everything that's going wrong um, is getting worse. And because we're mostly interested in fighting the pandemic, it's harder to keep an eye on all of those issues. And I think at any time of crisis or change, um, we everything's thrown up in the air and existing disadvantages get magnified so i was thinking of that uh, silicon valley phrase yeah, yeah move quickly and break things well you move quickly you don't break your own things you break other people's things and it's uh, you break people's jobs or you break people's livelihoods or you get or you ruin a housing market, you're, so, and you're disrupting people. And the people who don't have a safety net are going to be the ones that suffer most. So, so it just seems to me that we've, we've lost a sense of um, this type of collective, maybe we never had it, but, we, but we, we need to think much more about the collective sense of responsibility for everyone. And there was some hope early on, in the pandemic that we had got this solidarity but i think we're bored of solidarity and we've just gone back to business as normal uh, and um well let's just say there's going to be a lot of work for political philosophers of equality and inequality in the coming decade so you asked me what am i excited by well that is an interesting question um so it's it's not excitement. It's, maybe it's the opposite of excitement, but I'll, I'll say something else because you know, my, my world is a world of universities and uh, and education. And I am amazed, actually, at how quickly we've taken to online education as a possibility. I, I, you know, if we'd been asked to do this, we would have been told it would take 20 years. Um, but we managed it over a weekend. I think it's just a, it's a switch from one mode to another it's, it's unbelievable um and what is fascinating this is not f- really from a political philosophy point of view but an educational point of view is is what happens next so you know the, if you have optimistic scenario we have a vaccine it's very effective and a combination of natural death of the vaccine natural death of virus and the vaccine Everything returns to normal in six months' time, and this was all a bad dream. And we can open the universities just as we had before. But suppose that the, the either there isn't a vaccine or there is one. It's not as effective. We have the anti-maskers who don't take it and keep getting ill. Um, it it might not be a hundred percent effective for everyone who takes it. So we can still, so you know, we we still have. A, We have vaccines for measles. We still have measles around and mumps and rubella. So just having a vaccine doesn't eliminate it. And it may be that um, the levels of infection are really too high to open the universities in the way we had them before. So what does that mean? Um, it, It means that the traditional university campus is obsolete. Now, because the whole point of a university campus was to, to convene thousands, sometimes tens of thousands, even hundreds of thousands of people together in a single space well, if we 're not doing that, the, the campus is obsolete, and what would a online university world mean uh, so geographical distance no longer becomes relevant time zone to some degree does. Um, maybe regional or it could go in the other direction and regional proximity is more important because if you're uh, only if you're having all your classes over zoom you still want to be able to see some other people face to face so i'm I'm fascinated in what a semi post-covid world will look like for education and and whether this is the combination of the virus and online really is the end of the university or whether this is just a blip and we're going to go back to how we were
0: yeah i've seen that there's a lot of innovation and um i'd say exploration of what an online well how can online courses uh work and work well because i think we've all been there we, we, we found an online course and we've sat through a few of the the video lectures and you know i think 98 percent of the people don't complete them for, for whatever reason um but i know there's a, a guy i interviewed um uh, probably a year ago now um his name's tiago forte and he has this um course called building a second brain and it's basically about how to get the most out of your digital technologies such that you can Get everything that you really want to know or that that you've come across all your notes and everything and make it as accessible as possible Uh, and i know that he's doing a lot um with you know a few collaborators in kind of imagining how online courses can be done really really well and to make sure that people are highly engaged and get a lot of value on them and these people are charging you know nothing like university degrees um but yeah. you know, $1,000, $1,500 for a, for a course, but there's, um, online, there's, you know, online group sessions and, you know, a whole, whole array of things. And I've heard talk on Twitter of people trying to start like a, you know, humanities, like well, exploring what, a uh, what an online university would, would, would be like. And I personally don't like I'm studying at the moment. I'm doing, um, uh, honors in philosophy and it's, all remote and I don't like it. I'm not as good of of a student. Um, There's nothing, I mean, philosophy is more so, this is more about philosophy than maybe the other disciplines, but there's nothing better than being in the same room and having a good discussion. You know, Um, We've been having a a good chat, but I think if we were in the same room and if there was someone else who really disagreed with something that was said, I think it'd be a lot more, um, I don't know, engaging or exciting. So um, I think the digital realm Lacks a lot um, that you know being there in person um, can deliver, but at the same time, um, perhaps that's okay. If if it makes the university thirty thousand dollars cheaper, or you know if it increases access to by buy a tremendous amount, perhaps it's better. I, I don't know, um, but I, I personally think this the, the in person interaction is important.
1: Yeah. So I completely agree with you. So people still go to the theater, even though you can see us uh and cinema uh people go to see live bands even though you've got the record at home there's there's just something about being in physical presence of people that uh, we haven't yet captured online although you know it's better than four years ago so things things are getting better and better um so i I, yeah a couple of things so so one is i suppose it's just not possible to go back to the old system what's going to happen mm. um, and 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 I, I did write about this and i, th- I think what will happen is you, you'll have a segment segmentation of the market where uh, the the bulk will be delivered just as you say where people are paying a thousand for a course and a degree is 12 courses so you've paid twelve thousand for your degree and you've done it over three years and that seems okay um there'll be other people who do things which are much cheaper than that uh, that maybe don't have the same level of interaction but still give you a qualification and then at the top end you'll probably have small campuses that are isolated uh, where it's a social bubble no one's allowed off campus and you know the lecturers and the Mm. like an old-fashioned oxford college get with the except it couldn't be in the city it will have to be somewhere on a bit of farmland somewhere like a liberal american liberal arts college And, um, it'll be like a a highly elite, very, very expensive experience.
0: Yeah. It makes me think that it it depends on what you get on your resume, right? Because a lot of work has shown that the university, a lot of it is about the signaling benefits that you get. So if the signaling benefit was the same, if I, if, you know, I went to the university of Oxford and if there was all, all all those three options, uh, looked the same in my resume, it wouldn't matter so much. But if I went to the the elite, um, you know, enclosed um, version that you described, perhaps I'd have something separate on my on my resume, which would then, you know, be all the more, uh, yeah. all the more worth it. And people would recognise that. Uh, so yeah, yeah. that's an interesting question.
1: Yeah, good. Okay. Yeah, it is. So I hope we don't enter that world. And um, I hope the vaccine is 100% effective or it all dies out tomorrow. So um I, yes so so modest modest hopes modest yes hopes, yes yeah.
0: um so if, if people want to find out um you know more about your work if they want to um, find you online um where should people uh go and if you were to if people want to yeah we'll, we'll start with that first
1: okay well uh you see my name on the screen it's jonathan wolf um so if you google jonathan wolf Uh, You may well get the guy who wrote the Seinfeld theme tune who has the same name with the same spelling, Um, but I'm quite easy to distinguish from him. So if you want to be sure, put Jonathan Wolf philosophy or Jonathan Wolf Oxford, and um, that will come up with either my own homepage or the homepage for the Blavatnik school of government with my webpage. And, um, they, they both have the same information they both have links to my work so that's that's where you can look um if you're watching this on youtube uh, you can try the same search on youtube there are a few other videos and um things uh, interviews uh, that are up may, maybe half a dozen different topics um going back more than 10 years i think and um you can find my books in some libraries um and many bookshops as well
0: so. well i'll link to um all of those and in, in the show notes and um if for those who would l- love to dive more into political philosophy moral philosophy or philosophy in general but perhaps you know more of the political um more of the, in the political space uh, what would you recommend reading or um any advice for for, for for you know those aspiring to learn more in this area
1: okay so I've I've written an introduction to political philosophy, which is called an introduction to political philosophy. The third edition was published in 2016, I think it was. Uh, so that's available. Um, I've also written an introduction to moral philosophy, uh, again just called an introduction to moral philosophy, and the second edition is coming out any week now. So those are two books i would suggest um and, and those, those are things you can follow up from if you want to look at the most influential works of political philosophy now um the most important book is john Rawls' *A the theory of justice written in 1971 um it's not a particularly easy read but it it is very rewarding so that's where i would start but the uh, if you're interested in following up on the capability approach, then look at the work of Martha Nussbaum. And she has a book, a short, shortish book called Creating Capabilities, which really covers a lot of the things that we discussed today. So that's a starting point. But her work or the work of Amartya Sen, um, and actually covering some of the things we began with at the beginning, linking things together, Sen has written a brilliant uh, little paperback book called Development as Freedom, which links a lot of the themes we've had. So I I would really recommend that. That's one of my favorite books. So March send Development as Freedom.
0: Okay, wonderful. Well, I'll link to uh, all of those. Uh, Well, uh, Jonathan, um, really appreciate you taking the time. I really enjoyed that conversation.
1: Well, thanks so much, Sam, and thanks for sending it all off.
0: Well, thanks again to Jonathan for taking the time to have a chat. I really enjoyed it. Uh, It was a lot of fun. And uh, it was just really cool um, actually speaking to someone who uh, I referenced in essays that I've written. So yeah, that was fun. Um, like I said, all of the links uh, to what was discussed in the episode and Jonathan's work, his website and his Twitter handle can be found in the show notes. Um, so you can just you know check out your podcast app and find the show notes there or go to samhbarton.com slash podcast. And you can also find them there and while you are on the website if you do go um please consider signing up to my newsletter uh, for updates on future episodes and all of that fun stuff um and if you'd like to support the show you can do so in various ways um you can share it with uh friends or on social media or you can give it a rating on apple podcasts and if you'd like to keep up to date with whatever i've got going on new episodes Uh, things I'm interested in, all that sort of stuff, uh, just follow me on Twitter at Sam H. Barton. And until next time, thank you for listening and stay curious.